Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, King James Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, and today on Anchored by Truth, we're continuing our latest study series brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We've labeled this series, But What About? Because a lot of times you hear questions like, But what about angels and demons? Or, What about heaven and hell? As we've noted before, the Christian faith has not only a natural dimension, but also a supernatural one. This can be confusing to people who have not studied Christianity carefully. A lot of people believe in only what they can see and hear, and they discount the supernatural entirely. Others embrace the supernatural so fervently they actually fall for demonic deceptions. So, we're doing episodes on several of these subjects that create confusion to see what the Bible actually has to say about them. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., last time we did our second episode on angels. Are we going to continue that today? Well, greetings to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. We would really like to thank you for joining us here today because we know that all of you are very busy people and that if you take time out of your very busy schedules to come and join us on either the broadcast or the podcast, we know that's because you have a real interest in improving your understanding and awareness of Scripture and what the Bible says and how it applies to your lives. And we think that's great because it's certainly an interest that we share on Anchored by Truth. And to answer your question... Yes, today we are going to continue our discussion about the angelic order. But whereas in the first two episodes of this series, we focused on the holy angels, today we are moving over to talk about the other side. By the other side, you mean demons. Demons are also members of the angelic order. But the demons are the ones who chose to disobey God, rather than remain obedient as the holy angels did. Classically, It was said that Christians faced three opponents in their attempts to live a holy life. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil is the leader of the demonic order. Yes. The words demon and devil are actually just different translations of the same Greek word. And that Greek word is daimon. And it's spelled D-A-I-M-O-N. And demons and devils are, of course, often known in our culture as fallen angels. And that's because when the demons chose to rebel against God, they were cast out of heaven. Now, we are not told in Scripture what specific crime the demons committed, but we know that that crime involved some kind of rebellion against God. We don't really know either how long a period of time elapsed between the creation of the angelic order 
and the actions that resulted in one group of the angelic order obeying God and therefore being confirmed in a state of holiness for all eternity, and the other part of the angelic order disobeying God and therefore them being separated from God for all eternity. What we do know is that the actions of those demons or the holy angels resulted in them being confirmed in the state that reflected in them today being either fallen or unfallen. What we are sure of is that the entire angelic order was created in a state of probation, just as man was in the Garden of Eden. But unlike man, once the holy angels exhibited obedience, they were confirmed in a state of perpetual holiness. Similarly, after their rebellion, the demons were confirmed in their rebellious state, meaning there is no possibility for their redemption. The New Geneva Study Bible puts it this way, quote, The demons' minds are permanently opposed to God, goodness, truth, the kingdom of Christ, and the welfare of human beings. They have real, but limited, power and freedom of movement. Though, as Calvin said, they drag their chains wherever they go and can never hope to overcome God. Unquote. That's a great overall summary of the demons. The demons rebelled and the demons fell. And at least some group of those demons now has some freedom to trouble and afflict mankind. And the demons have both the knowledge and the strength to do so. And the demons are reported in the various Gospels as having been able to inflict or exploit both physical and mental maladies. In Luke chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, there's an account of Jesus encountering man who was possessed by a number of demons. The Bible says, quote, Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, the man replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss, unquote. In many of the instances that Jesus cast out demons, the Bible does not tell us where the demons went. But from these verses, it's clear that Jesus had the power to send them wherever he decided. Yes, and the demon's reference to begging not to be sent to the abyss is particularly interesting. How so? Well, there are some commentators, many actually, who believe that not all of the demons are actually free to roam the earth and afflict mankind. For instance, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Peter says, for God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell, in gloomy pits of darkness, where they are being held until the day of judgment. And then in the book of Jude, in verse 6, Jude says, And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. Now, notice that Peter and Jude are both saying essentially the same thing, that there are some group of the demons, the fallen angels, who sinned in such a way that God has cast them into some kind of a dark prison or the abyss. And notice that both of the writers say that those demons are being held in their prison until the day of judgment. So apparently, not all the demons are free to be able to roam around the earth and cause problems for mankind. So that puts a slightly different perspective, if you will, on what we heard the demons say to Jesus in those verses that you read from Luke. The demons were well aware that Jesus had power over them. And the demons were well aware that Jesus, if he chose to, 
could immediately consign them to the abyss. And apparently that's a place that's so awful that even the demons don't want to go there. That makes sense. And in a sense, it points out that God's mercy was active very early in the history of the created universe. Knowing how bad the demons who are free are, it's hard to imagine how much worse the demons who got immediately confined to the abyss must be. So, where do you want to go from here? Well, there are a couple of different points that I want to get to today. But before we go too much further, I just wanted to reiterate the last thing that we talked about in our last episode of Anchored by Truth. So the final point we made in our last show was that while demons may influence a believer's behavior, a demon cannot occupy or take possession of an authentic believer. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, quote, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world, unquote. And the one who is in the world is generally thought to be a reference to Satan. The one who is in you, if you are a believer, is the Holy Spirit. Exactly. So, as we go through our discussion today, I want the people who are listening, who are believers, who have accepted Christ as their Savior, to be assured that they cannot be taken over by Satan or any of his little demons. Now, that doesn't mean that the demons can't participate in tempting us or creating trouble for us, but it does mean that when we trust in the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we will be given the victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Well, another good point I think that we should make is that sometimes people get confused about Satan and who exactly he is. Some people think that Satan and Jesus are opposites of one another. They're not. Jesus is both fully human and fully God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, For in Jesus all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Satan is a created being. Jesus is the creator being. Jesus and Satan are not equal in stature or power. Jesus is immeasurably greater than Satan. The counterpart to Satan would more likely be Michael, the archangel. And that's a great point. So since we're talking about Satan, let's move on to another point about Satan. Satan is the leader of the fallen angels, but the name Satan, that's just about as much a title as it is a name. When Satan is used as a proper name, the Hebrew word that's translated as Satan has an article associated with it, and that term means the adversary. And you can find that term being used in Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, or Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And in the New Testament, the term Satan is used interchangeably with diabolos, which is normally translated as the devil. Other titles that the Bible uses for Satan include the dragon in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, the old serpent, the prince of this world in John chapter 12, verse 31 and 1430. The God of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, and the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Satan is also called Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. That's Matthew 12, 24. Satan is also described as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour in 1 Peter 5, 8. People are said to be taken captive by Satan. 
That's 2 Timothy 2.26. And Christians are warned to be on guard against Satan's devices, and that's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. And in chapter 4, verse 7 of James, James calls on us to resist the devil. Now, all of these references tell us that Satan is a dangerous adversary to Christians. But again, the good news is that Christ has redeemed his people from him that has the power of death, that is the devil. And that's in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. So again, this points to something very important for believers to understand. We need to be aware of Satan and his tactics and schemes because we can't guard against them if we are not aware of them. But we must also need to be aware that Satan is a defeated foe. Christ has triumphed over Satan. Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. And Christians will triumph over him as well. Satan is a creature. He is superhuman, but he is not divine. He most certainly is not Jesus' counterpart. In fact, Martin Luther famously said that the devil is God's devil. As long as we are aware of Satan's tactics, we can be confident in God's providential care for us in preserving us from Satan's plans. We know that Jesus is willing to intercede for his children in protecting them from the devil. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus told Simon Peter, quote, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith shall not fail, unquote. And that's why it's very important for all of us not to neglect the spiritual disciplines that keep us close to the Lord. And of course, those spiritual disciplines include prayer, regular Bible study, appropriate worship, both private and corporate. All of those things are important for our spiritual growth and development, but those things are also instrumental for ensuring us that we are alert to Satan's desires to thwart God's plans for us. We have to also remember that Satan's attempts to interfere with God's plan of redemption, they don't just start and stop with us. Satan has been trying to block God's plan to save God's people just as soon as God pronounced a curse on Satan in the Garden of Eden. You know, a lot of Christians don't focus on the fact that the fight that we're engaged in is not a new fight. We're just fighting the latest round of battles in a struggle that's been going on for thousands of years. And that actually leads us to something else you wanted to discuss today. The Bible's description of demonic activity are primarily contained within the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It seems that during the period of Jesus' earthly ministry, demonic activity was particularly pronounced. Right. You know, it's almost as if we could say that somehow Satan thought if Satan could just stop Jesus from completing his mission, that the curse that had been pronounced on Satan by God over 4,000 years earlier could be set aside. Well, let's be sure that everybody is aware of what we're talking about. In the book of Genesis, we're told Satan, disguised as a serpent, tempted Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Crystal Sea Books is producing a dramatized, poetic version of that moment in the garden, so we're going to listen to just a brief excerpt. We think it will help listeners imagine what might have been going on at that pivotal moment. Ah, the woman. Ah, the man. See how in paradise they play. 
while I from heaven was cast out. But soon I will make them pay. The serpent slyly revealed himself and posed a lying query. So subtle his approach and choice of words, the woman was not wary. The serpent presented to her false choice. Then God's goodness denied. The woman caught by silky snare failed on God's word to rely. Like God you can be, the serpent foully intrigued. Taste the fruit, it cannot kill. The serpent more fully deceived. Eve stared at the fruit. So beautiful. To her eye and taste it appealed. So lovely. But her desire to be like God. I will be like God. Is what her choice revealed. See the tree. How it pleases the eye. It's fruit so delicious to taste. Take and eat. It should be yours. To its pleasures quickly make haste. Later in the day, after Eve fell for Satan's temptation, God arrived in the garden when the cool evening breezes are blowing. Apparently, Satan was still there with Adam and Eve because God confronts all three. Then in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, God curses Satan. This is verse 15, and God is speaking to Satan. Quote, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Unquote. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 sets the stage for the rest of the Bible. In the rest of the Bible, we hear the story of the hostility between demons and man. We hear the unfolding story of God's plan to redeem a portion of mankind, and we hear the story of Satan's attempts to thwart God's plan and purpose. Exactly. It took about 4,500 years between God pronounced the curse and Jesus was actually born. Well, of course, Jesus' birth gave rise to the final stage, the final steps that would culminate with Satan striking Jesus' heel. And of course, that's a serious injury, but it's not a fatal injury. So Jesus' life resulted in Satan striking Jesus' heel. Obviously, the death on the cross, well, that's a, that's a pretty serious blow. But it also resulted in Jesus crushing Satan's head. Well, a blow on the heel is painful, but not fatal. But a blow on the head, especially crushing the head of the serpent, well, that's fatal. Now, it's fatal in the sense that it crushed Satan's schemes, plans, and dreams. It did not, in that sense, end Satan's existence, because Satan, like all of us, is going to live eternally. But the question is whether Satan is going to live eternally in torment or eternally in bliss. Well, of course, Satan is going to live eternally in torment, and Jesus completing his assigned task to offer himself as a sacrificial death to save his people, well, that crushed Satan's head because that was absolutely fatal to all of Satan's aspirations. Demons are frequently said to inspire human beings to take actions that rebel against God or God's purposes. This can sometimes happen with even people who live generally commendable lives. 
For instance, in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, it says, quote, Satan rose up against Israel and caused David to take a census of the people of Israel, unquote. Yes, the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians, and us for that matter, that we all have to be on our guard against Satan's devices. You know, if Satan could tempt David to sin, well, all of us need to be that much more careful. At any rate, the next attempt that we're told about in the Gospels of Satan attempting to stop Jesus from completing his mission was when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus was given three temptations in the wilderness. One of those temptations was for Jesus to simply fall down and worship Satan. And Satan said that in return, he would give Jesus all the kingdoms that Jesus could see standing on the top of a very high mountain. Now, essentially, this temptation was for Jesus to receive his rightful dominion without having to endure the cross. You know, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. Jesus knew what he had to do to become the Savior. Jesus knew that completing his mission was going to be costly to him personally. Jesus knew that he was going to have to endure that injury to his heel. But of course, Jesus did not succumb to those temptations. What Jesus used to repel Satan was Scripture. And Jesus used Scripture not once, but all three times. So what you're saying is that Satan, aided by the other demons, tried their best to stop Jesus. And the intensity of their actions on earth apparently increased dramatically during Jesus' life and ministry. That's the conclusion we would reach by just checking the number of references to demonic activity the Bible contains. And obviously, the final attempt Satan made to derail God's plan to bring salvation to his elect was to kill Jesus. You have to believe that Friday evening after the crucifixion, Satan and his demons were celebrating because as far as they knew, they had brought about the death of God's anointed Messiah. And because Satan is non-omniscient, he did not know what was going to happen next. And I think that's right, even though Satan should have known, because Jesus had clearly told his disciples that he would rise from the dead after three days. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus fulfilled that three-day prophecy in the Friday, Saturday, and then rising on Sunday. And this also fulfilled the prophecy, don't forget, that was made in Genesis 3.15. In dying on the cross, Jesus fulfilled his mission of redeeming everyone who had put their trust in him for salvation. And in rising from the dead, Jesus showed that his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. Jesus' resurrection defeated both death and Satan. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul points out that Jesus' resurrection from the dead guarantees that all those who place their trust in Jesus will also be raised to eternal life. This will deny both the grave and Satan their victory and take away the sting of death. So, just as a recap, there was a high degree of demonic activity during Jesus' life. But you know, there was another striking period of demonic activity just before the worldwide flood that's recorded in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, the one which Noah survived by building the ark. And where do you see the demonic activity in that part of Scripture? Well, Genesis chapter 6 verse 2 says, The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. 
Well, there are some variations in how commentators view the term sons of God, but many commentators point out that the Hebrew words that are translated as sons of God are used consistently in both the Old and the New Testament to refer to angels. Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, in his magnificent 800-page commentary on the first 11 chapters of Genesis, goes through an extensive discussion about how the term sons of God means angels, how this is the correct translation. And the Septuagint, which was the Greek version of the Old Testament that was in circulation during Jesus' day, actually translate that phrase rather than sons of God, but angels of God. So Dr. Sarfati actually sees the illicit relations between fallen angels and human women as the reason for the extreme wickedness that resulted in the destruction of the entire human race, except for Noah and his family. Dr. Sarfati's view is not universally accepted, but it has the virtue of being consistent with what we know about Satan and his intent to thwart God's plan for one of Eve's descendants to crush Satan's head. Dr. Sarfati writes, quote, If womankind was corrupted by their angelic mates, then the seed could not arrive. By seed, Dr. Sarfati is referring to the promised descendant of Eve that would defeat Satan. Right. So the final place in the Bible where demonic activity is prominent is in the book of Revelation, which of course in large measure describes the period immediately before Jesus' return to the earth and the period immediately after Jesus' return. So, speaking broadly, there are three parts of Scripture where we see prominent demonic activity, and each part is with a particularly important event in redemptive history. During the time of Noah, the entire human race was reduced to the family of one man, and the protection of that man and his family enabled the continuation of the line that would ultimately produce the promised Messiah. Then there was an unparalleled amount of demonic activity when Jesus, the Messiah, was actually on the earth. And there will be another escalation in demonic activity just before the final judgment and the imposition of the ultimate penalty for the demon's rebellion. In other words, the demons display a clear awareness of the fact that their rebellion has consequences for them, eternal consequences, and they have done their best through the course of human history to avoid those consequences. Right. But of course, demons can't avoid the consequences of their rebellion against an infinitely holy God any more than human beings can. The only reason we as people can have hope is because the perfect man Jesus bore the consequences for our rebellion, for our sin, when he sacrificed himself on the cross. So unlike the demons, there is no need for any person to suffer eternally for their rebellion. All we have to do is place our trust in Jesus' atoning death. You know, it's been said, we can stand before God as if we were Jesus, because Jesus stood before God as if he were us. Well, next time, we'll turn our attention to one particular angel that appears in various places in Scripture, the so-called Angel of the Lord. There are various opinions as to who the Angel of the Lord is, so we want to take a little time to probe this question more deeply. This sounds like a great time for a prayer. Since our kids are back in school today, let's listen to a prayer for the school boards that guide our educational system. Let's also remember to not only pray for the school boards, but also to be active in providing input and feedback to them, especially on issues that can be so important to the future of our kids. A prayer for school boards. 
all-wise and everlasting Father, we glorify your name, for you alone are worthy to receive worship and praise as the one true God. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of coming into your presence. We do so with glad hearts and earnest hope. Lord, we pray that you would be in our midst this day as we ask for special blessings for our school board. Theirs is the important work of providing guidance to all the schools and learning centers in our community. As issues arise before the board, please help the members to be faithful and diligent to their calling. Grant them wisdom in their deliberations and decision-making. Help them to always focus on the genuine needs of students and schools. Inspire them to be trustworthy stewards of the authority and responsibility that has been placed in their hands. Make your manifest presence felt in their meetings and ensure that they are never satisfied with mediocrity. Illuminate their minds with the brilliance of your word. Encourage them and do not let them grow weary in their tasks. We ask all this with the confidence that you hear our prayers for the sake of your Holy Son. It is in his incomparable name that we pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.